Hello, this is Martin Page, and this is a Radio Owl's Nest special, part three of the making of In the House of Stone and Light. The tale is behind my first solo album made in 1994. Hopefully you heard part one and part two, and this is the final part three. In the earlier specials, I talked about the inspiration behind the songs, how I wrote the songs and what the songs meant, how I approached the performance and singing of the songs, how the demos became the masters and how the drummer Jimmy Copley worked with me at the beginning of the whole process, building the solid foundations of the rhythmic tracks. Also talked about all the other musicians that got involved and laid down their artistry on the initial songs. And now we're at that point where I have to step back, be on my own again, like it was when I wrote the initial songs, and get a big overview. An overview of what I've got here. Compile everybody's performances into one cohesive vision of In the House of Stone and Light. It wasn't a time I was really looking forward to, because when you're just working with the musicians, there's a lot of freedom, a lot of fun, and a lot of experimentation. And now I'd hit that place where everything had to get serious. I was the producer and the uh, default engineer uh, on this record. It was going to take a very big view. Putting many hats on, really. Being the artist, but being the engineer, uh, and doing the technical side of things, as well as having the overview of the producer. Um, before you can just be there with the players having a great time and uh, having a loose feel for what you're going for. But now was the crunch time when I really had to sit back and focus on the technical side. I was working on an analog 24 track tape machine, but I was making slaves, extra reels of tape um, to make it a 48 track um, session on each song. But I couldn't hear the slaves at the same time because I didn't have two machines. So a lot had to be done from memory as well as absolute, absolute knowledge of the intricacies of the tracks. When you made slave reels, you had to have a good sense of what was on the other reel you were taking tracks from. And just to say, it uh, was a period where I really had to uh, get into focus here. Uh, all up to this point, from writing the songs, from singing them, yes, it's all, uh, you know, it's all work but it's creative. There is a creativity to this, but there was a sense where I really had to be a little bit like um, in the factory and uh, bringing everything together logistically. Now, as a creator and a musician, <laughs> that's not the natural place to go. But um, I felt I was the best guy for it. I felt I knew the blood and veins of this album. And by doing it at home, even though it may might have been a little bit tougher, a little bit slower, I believe that I could put my arms around it in a very intimate and very close way. So um, the compiling of the record, yes, I wasn't looking forward to it, but I knew it had to be done. I also knew I was the best guy for it. Um, I felt like I couldn't delegate it out because I thought I know this too well. I'm too close to this, so I just have to go the distance. I'm a stubborn man. Um, but I also believed very strongly that um, I had to do the job myself. There was going to be a lot of hair pulling, a lot of moaning, a lot of cursing, a lot of technical problems, a lot of frustrations. But you know you've just got to do it because it's your baby. 
The next stage after this would be in the actual mixing studio with a mixer. I'd already chosen the great Mike Shipley to mix this record for me. And I wanted to bring the tapes in almost finished for him to work on. So there wasn't going to be any time lost while he was trying to create the best mixes. So it was my job to prepare all the tracks for mixing in a very organized, simplistic way for him. So he could see straight away when he pushed up those 48 channels to mix that he could get a sense of what the song was straight away. Many mixers work on albums and when they come there to, to mix, it's a confusion. And a lot of time is lost while they're trying to work out the... Uh, mathematics of the song well i wanted to get that all out of the way up front so that what i could give to my great friend mike shipley was a cohesive sense of the song instantly as he pushed those tracks up i wanted him to get an idea straight straight away what the song was about then he could concentrate on just the sonics and the emotion and the clarity of this getting the song across in a fine mix so I'm going to try and spend a little bit of time here giving you a sense of what this compiling period was like, but to, but to portray it to you in, in the creative terms, in the musical terms, in some of the magical things that could happen when I was bringing everybody's performances and organizing the song into what I would, the album actually, organizing the album into what I would call as an overall painting. Uh, there was a lot of uh, movement going on. A lot of the parts that players played were moved from the places they played them into different parts of the song. Now this was the analog day, so it wasn't the digital Pro Tool days where you could just uh, copy something and uh, paste it in. This was movement of actual, you know, sending something down to a two-track tape machine and flying it in back into the master reel. So it was a little bit more vintage in its approach. But some magical things would always happen for me in this process of compiling. I hope I can get this across to you. I had an ultimate vision of what In the House of Stone and Light was. I had a Celtic kind of rhythmic big sky and spiritually ancient but modern funky view. It's hard to put into words but also a historic sense of what this record was. In fact the title track In the House of Stone and Light for me but is based on a spirituality which is not locked down. We're talking about shamanism and we're talking about um, the spiritualism of individual people. And I tried to reflect that in even all the, all the parts that players played with me. And when you get a keyboardist playing like PJ Moore, I was able to take the keyboard parts that he played uh, in the days that he was with me and re-look at them, uh, print different reverbs and echoes and ambience around them and get to, get to see them as slightly different parts of the way that he might have even performed them. It, was, it really was like moving colors around um, in picture form. I'm a great believer in cross-fading sounds, and uh, that's what I've done all my career, is taking parts of sounds and blending them into other sounds, cross-fades, moving two faders together, so you could bring a guitar and cross-fade it into a keyboard line. And you wouldn't really know what the instrument was that was playing, because there was crossfades and movement and ambience in the movement of the uh, the sound and i used to think of the players a player like bill dylan with his symphonic um approach to guitar and a guitarist like neil taylor and with his angular rhythmic playing and i would try to think about those two characters those two um life forms coming together again it sounds grand but i did have a 
a sense of a spiritual vibe on even doing this technical factory work that when you listen to the bed and the movement within the songs the rhythm the animalistic energy always as well mixing with the clouds and the sky and the temperature of uh, that ancient day when you're trying to make this song sing i'm trying to express this in a way that makes the technical side um, become not technical but flowing flowing and fluency of um, creativity yes you have to blend the two worlds together we are doing mathematics here as well as uh, drawing a, a portrait of something in art so it really compiling this record was very much that way to me always keeping my eye on the VU's make sure that everything technically was working right and organization but even on top of that I was trying to create this um, ancient landscape which I did feel was in the house of stone and light the main decisions were emotional decisions um, so the compiling yes a technical if you were to watch me doing it it's boring as a man sat there doing crossfades for hours and hours but those crossfades were performances they were also like a musician playing um, a lead line or ex expressing himself on a keyboard um, I was doing that I believe in the engineering of the compiling and the crossfading of all these performances from the musicians that had played um, in the last few months and just to say here I looked at every single um, part of this album every inch of it every centimeter every bit that every player played and of course a lot was thrown onto the floor and uh, pushed away because right up to the last moment I would leave everything there for me to study on days like this um, I was a great believer in letting uh, everybody do their thing and then for me to step in through this uh, period of compiling and comping uh, and then I would see what needed to be cut and left on the floor and what needed to be focused and kept in the actual tracks. Um, I won't go on much more about this period. I think possibly from my stream of consciousness you know what I'm talking about here. Um, it's almost like trying to blend electricity and numbers with air and sky. This period of the process was very much like a reflection, a mirror reflection of actually writing the songs. Because at this point, I could actually see the songs I'd written becoming formed. I could actually see the vision taking place. By moving all these uh, musical ideas together and compiling them, I was able to see that my initial ideas were getting flesh on the bones. They were coming alive and uh, so at the end of that compiling sometimes it was a wonderful wonderful feeling because you could say ah yes somehow subconsciously this is what I imagined and now we're on to uh, at a massive next stage and this massive next stage is the mixing of the album all the eight months of work <laughs> Uh, everything we've done is now going to be put into a space, a tunnel, and we're going to mix this record. We're going to funnel it down to what it's actually got to be for everybody to hear. Absolutely crucial, 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 crucial period, as though there wasn't any other crucial period. And uh, what was really, really important was I had to pick the right mixing engineer. Now, that really wasn't too hard for me, although I'd worked with the greatest, I think, engineers of my time, George Massenberg, Mick Gazowski, Nigel Green, uh, Bill Bottrell. I'd had a luxury of working with great engineers. Mix engineers, um, 
were of this caliber were very rare. And I, but I did have in my mind my good friend from Australia, uh, Mike Shipley. Mike Shipley, I'd met in my early days, right back in London, uh, on well, working for Jive Records when we did the Q Phil record, mixing Dancing in Heaven. And from that moment when I met Mike, I knew that we had exactly the same sentiments about music. We had a real close communication on what we appreciated, what we liked, and what we felt in our souls. And Mike had an exquisite ear. And he was a drummer uh, before he was an engineer. Uh, he had an exquisite um, placement of instruments in his sonic uh, palette and his sonic mixes. And so even as I was making this record, I thought uh, in the back of my mind it would be a luxury to uh, get Mike Shipley. And my manager, halfway through the eight months, uh, started to talk to his management and try to get him in line. And luckily... Mike's time was open and he was going to mix in the House of Stone and Light for me, which felt again that I'd found the right uh, extra member uh, in the family to make this album uh, shine. Now, mixing an album, um, an engineer has to get very, very close to the producer and sometimes the artist. And I was very... Um, Mike was a great friend of mine. We, um, we got on well together. So if you're going to do a long period of mixing a record, you want to be able to get on with the chap that you're trying to get your ideas across to. So Mike had followed me across sometime after I'd come to America and Los Angeles. Mike arrived in Los Angeles. And he'd been doing fantastic work. Before that, you know, he did all the Def Leppard records. And then when he was in America, he was doing um, some exquisite work with Tom Dolby, uh, the Prefab Sprout album, and Joni Mitchell. I just thought sonically those records were uh, superb. So before we started the mixing, I got with Mike and I played him uh, the songs at this, at this stage. And we had a great discussion and I really had a vision for how I saw the record. And he's one of those guys that will uh, really listen to uh, your perception. And I said to him, I don't want that Def Leppard stuff. I don't want it too bright. I don't want it all over compressed and crispy and uh, over exciting. I said, I love the work you did with Tom Dolby and Prefab Sprout. I said, that's sonically where I feel it. I want the bass, the bass to resonate. And Mike seemed to get that picture. Um, and, he, and he said, we need to get a, a certain SSL board in the studio that had a low octave range. He knew that I was going to be going for a lowness in this record. I kept on pointing him to kinds of albums that I said, well, listen, to me, bass is uh, mood. To me, bass is emotion. And that's what I want to uh, accomplish here. And Mike really took that on board, which was fantastic. And we discussed what Mike thought he needed for the uh, mixing and the kind of studios he wanted. And uh, I wanted to provide him with what he needed. And he said, I want to get some Poltec EQs in there to get your voice very, very rich and get some um, low, low, low richness there. And he chose um, a couple of studios that he'd like to mix at, that he'd been mixing at before. So we were well on our way to getting to that stage where it's so important to put all the ingredients into the perfect uh, melting pot. But I must mention here, um, uh, Mike had done a lot of work with Robert Mutt Lang, as I said, with the Def Leppard uh, albums. And they were excruciating albums for him to work on. Um, they would mix songs for months. 
Um, uh, a short mix might be <laughs> a week. And Mike was actually scarred from those um, from those sessions. And he, and he uh, was very, very dubious about how long this project would take. Now, I am notorious for mixing as long as it takes. Uh, most people, even back in those days, in the 80s and the 90s, they'd say we mix for a day. Maybe go into the evening, check it in the morning, and then it's done. But for me, my experience was a mix would take three days at the best, and then an extra day to check. Now, Mike had been psychologically damaged by all the work he'd done with Robert Mutlang. Um, even though he loved, they were great friends, he said the work rate was just, um, you know, too much. And uh, it had left, the, as I say, a scar upon Mike. So when I said, Mikey, you know, I might be doing three to four days on a mix, he gave me the look of death at first. And he said, I'm going to, we won't need it, Martin. We won't need to go that long. Um, well... I'm going to impart to you that <laughs> we did need that time. And uh, there were a few moments when we were mixing where Mike just looked at me and said, you're taking me back into that hellhole of never leaving a studio and being so intense. Mike was psychologically very much like me in every detail. Every detail had to be right. So I think for Mike, it was like, you know, if you push me uh, too far into the looking for per perfection of a certain kind, um, I'm not going to enjoy this project. But we were so uh, s such good friends that Mike said, um, I'm going to prove to you I can mix this faster, and I'm into it. And uh, But I did say to my manager, please make sure that we have enough time in the studios if we have to push onwards. So secretly, although Mike was saying I'll mix these in a day, I was thinking a mix could take four days to a week. And so I made sure that the studios were going to give us longer than uh, possibly Mike thought. And my weapon to use if Mike was getting a bit disillusioned with me was humour. Um, we both had the same sense of humour, so if I thought it was getting a little bit stressed or too tight, my humour would uh, I, luckily sometimes warm him up and he'd, we'd have a good laugh together. So on to the actual mixing. Mike's first decision was to go into a studio called Record Plant in Los Angeles. And we both decided that we were going to mix Shape the Invisible first. Now I wanted to make the studio such an atmosphere, such a, a, a spirit when you walked into the mixing room because you're going to be in there for a long time. So I wanted to decorate the uh, control room. And when I say decorate, it, I really, really mean decorated. Uh, we, we spoke to the studio uh, owners and we said, uh, can we do this? And, we, and uh, they knew we were serious. We even uh, acquired uh, stained glass windows. Um, we had um, amazing paintings. We had um, nature trails made into the studio. We had flowers. We had wreaths. And we absolutely changed the recording studio into a kind of... Um, Wonderland, a kind of dark uh, grotto, um, because I, I didn't want to be just be walking into a cold, cosmetic room. The music was so, on this album was so, um, to me, uh, luxuriously deep that I didn't want to bring it into a cold, bright world. I wanted to create a um, mystical world to mix this in. I think it really would affect Mike and it would affect me and the second engineers that were there to have this vision so that we could really, really focus. So, before we started the mix on Shape the, the Invisible at, the, at um, Record Plant, uh, we 
went in for two days, uh, my manager and myself and a few friends, and we decorated the studio um, beyond what you can believe. Um, it, it was turned into a really a, a church of um, sound. Uh, it's hard to, uh, t- you probably think, yes, a few pictures here and candles there, but no, it was like walking into another world. Uh, when the studio manager came in, who owned the studio and saw it, his mouth just dropped and he was like, wow, this is pretty fantastic, as long as the candles don't burn the studio down. And then when Mike walked in to do the mixing, he just, his mouth dropped and he stood there and went, wow, this is fantastic. This is far out. And Mike totally got the vibe. Um, Every day we were going to come into work, we were going to be working, coming into a sacred place. I really saw it as a, um, uh, as that, a place of ritual. So uh, after the two days of decorating, which was very important, we settled down to mix shape the invisible in the record plant. Now, I basically let Mike just start the track up and do his thing and just briefly talk to him. And then I would uh, uh, leave him to it and sit behind him. Good thing about the record uh, plant was I was sat back about 20 feet, a little bit uh, in the darkness, risen up. And I could just, uh, you know, uh, let Mike do his thing and just make a few suggestions. And uh, Mike was thrilled when he opened all the tracks and said, wow, what a drummer. The performances here, you know, and the players. Uh, he really got into it. He could hear clearly how well the, re- the album was played. And um, luckily he wasn't too upset with the recording because a lot of that was done by me. <laughs> um, and we started to mix Shape the Invisible and uh, my only thing was make it bassier, make it bassier. And Mike was working on Shape the Invisible for about two days and we were getting, getting there and then something um, bad happened. Now this studio, we didn't realize, was uh, sometimes used by Prince. And uh, although we'd booked this studio for a whole uh, album, uh, Prince suddenly wanted to come into the studio where we were. Uh, there were, I think there were two or three other rooms there at the studio, but he, Prince, wanted uh, our room on a whim. And although we uh, signed a contract, uh, the manager of the studio came in and said, I need to move you out and put you in another room. Uh, uh, this is... We've got to put prints in here. And of course, we were we decorated the room. We were locked in. We were living there. We were feeling it. And our mix was like, you know, two days in. And we were just beginning to get the feel. And here we were being told that, hey, you have to get out. You have to leave because Prince is outside waiting to come in. Well, I didn't care that it was Prince who wanted to come in. And uh, I actually refused for us to move because it really we'd re- we'd signed the contract and and uh, the right thing to do was to allow us to fin- finish our album. It was the right thing to do, but the manager wanted Prince there, and I can understand that because uh, it was Prince, um, uh, and who was I? But <laughs> I, I, it just wasn't good business ethics, um, and it's and it really interfered with our with our flow. Uh, Mike, who doesn't want to get involved in confrontations and he knew all the managers and everybody in the studios he just left left it to me and we i do remember going to meet the manager in his office and uh i probably shouldn't portray this too um strongly but i basically stood there and said you're going to have to throw me out of the studio because uh we've done a deal with you and you should honor it um 
And the, and the, the manager uh, basically uh, didn't really know how to talk to us about it, but he was absolutely adamant. The other room they wanted to put us to put us in wasn't right, and it wasn't uh, big enough or have the right equipment for Mike, and uh, so we couldn't just move into the room next door. Eventually, it got into a state where the spirit wasn't right and this manager was definitely um, doing something underhand at the record plant. And after talking to my manager, I backed off uh, from the office with him because I thought, we don't want to get into fisticuffs, but I was definitely getting into that place where I wasn't too spiritual. Um, I do have memories of standing at his desk and... Uh, looking down on him in the chair and thinking, I am not pleased at all. But luckily my manager said, uh, let's pull back uh, Martin here. I think my old football career as being a centre-half where you uh, <laughs> you don't walk away from a fight um, uh, was coming into me again. So luckily uh, the spiritual side of In the House of Stone and Light won the day and my manager said, got to get away from here. So um, although it was uh, not the right thing for a uh, studio to do we decided to say uh, let's move on so i spoke to mike and mike said there's another studio that has all the equipment we need in the valley and that is called record one and he said let's go there so we took all our decorations down um we took away the mix of shape the invisible which i think we just almost finished uh, after two and a half days and we decided to trek across town. And again, I went in with my manager and my friends and we decorated re Record One exactly the same way. We made our church of sound, our wonderland, our ritual grotto. We made it even better at uh, Record One. I controlled myself and my temper came back to a normal mid-place. I became the Buddhist I should be. And uh, we started uh, the process all over again in a new home. And I preferred this new home. It was a really lovely studio. Uh, it was used uh, by Michael Jackson a great deal. And I thought, I hope Michael Jackson doesn't want to come in on a whim. But they guaranteed me that we would have the time there. Now, we decorated this area so amazing because we had a bit of experience that we even had other artists and producers dropping by to see what we did. A rumour spread that the way we've, we had designed and decorated uh, Record One, it was exceptional. And uh, Stevie Nicks and her people and a few other artists came down with their, uh, with their crews uh, before we started mixing and on different days to just have a look at what we did. And they took photographs and they took notes. And I believe that... Uh, Stevie Nicks um, did actually um, emulate what we did when she was mixing her records. Well, that's the rumour anyway. So this was good. We settled in and we settled in for good. And we started to really get uh, into the mixes of um, In the House of Stone and Light. And most of the mixes were accomplished there. Um, we did some great work there. And we were allowed to get into our groove. Um, we were at home for a period of time. I do remember that most of the songs did take three days, um, uh, three and a half days. And Mike, uh, <laughs> he fell into the groove with me, luckily, because he was enjoying what we were doing. And we got into that uh, method of really every song taking three to three and a half days. Um, but two songs, In the House of Stone and Light and I Was Made For You, I wasn't totally happy with what we were 
how we mixed them the first time. And I knew that we would have to uh, mix those two songs again. But I didn't uh, like to that to Mike at first because I thought um, I've got to approach that carefully. But in my little notebook, I thought I've got to mix In the House of Stone and Light again and I Was Made For You again. We hadn't quite accomplished... Um, just what we needed to do with those songs. I do remember with Broken Stairway that when Mike uh, heard that, he said, you can't ask me to mix this for three and a half days. This is just you at the piano. And uh, we did mix that song very quickly. For me, uh, a day and a half. And it's, uh, you know, that turned out beautiful. So after we finished at record one, we had caused a few problems with the candles. Uh, Alan Sides came in and said, look, you're burning down the board. So we had a little bit of a confrontation there. Uh, <laughs> we had to uh, pay them for some of our religious burning going on. Yes, sacrilege going on there. Um, but Mike um, did fall into that same uh, feeling that I had, that in the house of stone and light, and I Was Made For You, needed, we needed to try those two songs again. So we, we booked A&M Studios. Um, I love A&M Studios, great atmosphere, and we'd done early uh, recording there, so we went back to A&M Studios. And there we mixed In the House of Stone and Light uh, the way you hear it now. And the remix on I Was Made For You uh, went fantastic as well. Um, when you think about it, um, we knew that In the House of Stone and Light was going to be the key track. And so uh, Mike had studied the song the first time he mixed it, and he said, second time around, I'm really, we're really going to nail this. Um, and I remember when I was made for you, he wasn't too happy with how we could get consistency on the uh, kick drum, even though we had wonderful um, live drums being played by Phil Collins. He said the kick drum is a little bit inconsistent, and he did a wonderful job of sampling a drum machine kick and mixing that in um, with uh, Phil Collins's playing. I do remember that for some reason. But, um, and in the House of Stone and Light, uh, when we, uh, that was our final track that we mixed uh, on the album. And I do remember that I was pushing for this special place between the snare drum and the lead vocal. And I do remember Mike saying, I think you're pushing the snare too, too loud. And I was saying, no, we really need that whiplash. We need to get that uh, Copeland Police whiplash on this song. And um, he said to me, well, really, I can't see it any higher than it is, but I'm going home and you play with it. So the final mix was uh, me playing with the snare drum up. And I remember Mike saying, that's much too high, but uh, that's the mix I chose. We mixed House of Stone and Light and most of the songs about 12 times. Uh, when I say 12 times, there were 12 mixes of the song with slight different moves in them. Um, and I would make the final choice later on. Yes, I gave myself a lot of trouble with that. Uh, glutton for punishment. Yes, uh, I do remember um, the mixes were fantastic with Mike. And I do remember sitting in the, uh, the uh, A&M car park. Sitting in A&M's car park with my manager and playing... Oh, cassette mixes, yes, cassettes were that. And we were just going through all the songs and um, we were feeling like, yeah, this is uh, feeling special. In reflection now, I can remember uh, possibly in the middle of uh, mixing everything, I think uh, um, we were mixing Keeper of the Flame, yes. And I was a bit worried that I wasn't getting the uh, rawness, um, the fire that I really needed to pull out of this track. And I was just, I did have a moment when I was thinking maybe I should separate the, uh, that track out and maybe one other uh, and give it to Bill Bottrell. I'd worked with Bill Bottrell um, 
on Corrugated Iron, on uh, Bernie Taupin's record and a few other tracks. And he had just a, 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 a totally different attitude to the way Mike was. He was very raw and ready. And he'd also been the mixer, the final mixer on We Built This City. And I thought he had a, I could tell his style was very um, guttural and dirty punchy around the the bottom end of the tracks and I thought Keeper of Flame needs to have a bit of that and I actually went to Bill Bottrell's studio in Pasadena and sat down with him for like uh, one day on a weekend Um, and I remember playing in the tracks and uh, talking to him about it and he was saying well these sound amazing they sound fantastic and I think you're overthinking it and I think he was right Um, and I um, drove away thinking yes I'm just too intense at this point we've got a great um, flow going with this whole record and so um, that idea was dropped quite quickly but I do appreciate that Bill Bertrell who became a great friend he was there to give some advice and he was willing to go forward and I could see that I was overthinking and very intense at this point. This was a very, very, very focused period. And it was important, I could see now, that uh, a consistency needed to be held on to. There was a real consistent flow on this record from day one to this point. And uh, yes, we were in a good place. So here we are. All the mixing is done and all the choices of the songs are are done and what's next? Well then you've got to make friends with the record company. (laughs) Then you've got to meet the men in suits. Uh, That's an absolutely another um, game that you have to play when you're making an album. Suddenly it's not so much uh, creativity uh, in the musical world but creativity in politics. Um, it's really, really, really important to make friends with the people that are going to splash money behind all the uh, hard work you've, you've done for the last year. So um, you suddenly become a politician uh, of sorts, which is, again, not a fantastic place for a creative musician to be, I suppose. But somehow I took to it, I think, because I felt so strong about the record. Um, and in some ways I was really looking forward to this because I believed in the record so much. I believe that what, I, uh, what we had here was something a little bit um, special and a little bit out of the ordinary. And so in some ways um, I was looking forward to playing this record to uh, the men in suits. And the men in suits were basically in New York and I was in Los Angeles. So um, I had to fly with my manager to New York to meet up with Mercury Records for the first time. And it is a strange situation when you suddenly appear in all these offices and they look you up and down to say, well, he looks reasonably good. Uh, He's a tall bloke. Um, Well, how are we going to market him? You know, Uh, (laughs) and of course, when I first played in the House of Stone and Light, the album to uh, my A&R man, um, Bob Scoro, he, he got it, but he didn't get it. He got it, but he didn't get it. It was like, I think it was in that place where it was a little different to what um, was in the pop market at that point. And I really was making it as an artist. So I think he had to sort of sway himself into the belief like, uh, there's commerciality here. And uh, I think he was um, 50-50 to tell you the truth, maybe 75-25 in favor of the record. Uh, One thing you couldn't deny was the, I think, the passion and the musicianship and the dedication to something just a little bit um, more intimate and more real in many ways. 
So then it was after my A&R man, who obviously wanted this to work, to meet with everybody else at the record company. And I, from my football days, my soccer days as a young lad, and being captain uh, in the early years of uh, my hometown and the, and the county, I knew that I really needed to get it, most people in the record company, the majority, really behind this project. And I thought, no, I really do have to get to meet everybody there at Mercury Records in New York. And if I can get a real sense of solidity behind this record, and I can portray to these people, the best of them, um, what was behind this record, maybe I would be able to get a solid army behind me. Uh, it was about passion, and I really wanted to speak to everybody in the uh, uh, record company that would be involved with this record. I really wanted to see if I could get the passion and the story and the concept and the heart of this project into them. And in general, I did. I think um, <clears throat> I stayed initially for about a week in, in New York and just visited everybody in, with my manager in Mercury uh, offices. And this is a very big building. So my manager and I, Diane Poncho, we had a plan that we would meet at a certain place like the bottom floor lifts. We'd have a plan. I would go here. I would go there. She would go there. She would go here. We would meet up with all the promotion people, um, all the different departments that would be pushing this record out. And then we would meet again after our forays into, uh, into the wars and take notes. And at the end of uh, that day, we would say, have we seen everybody and what do we think of them and what do they think of us? Uh, very important to get to the promotion departments and the international departments. But we really had a game plan. And I think through this period of trying to get close to Mercury, I've, I've, I funded my own flights to New York about four, five, six times. I knew that I had to keep uh, going to New York and not do this from a distance. It was a political campaign, I suppose. And out of that, I got to meet with some very good people that really believed in the record. So probably, you know, out of seeing about 30 people, maybe four or five became real instigators of belief in this record. They, in effect, became disciples of the record, which I was very pleased. There were some people, maybe four or five, who really took it under their skin. It was about making friends with them and for them to see that I, I wanted to promote this record. I think I, I'm feeling that now. That the main thing was I wanted them to see me as I was and that I wanted to take this record to the limit and I wanted to uh, promote it. So I think that was the main thing, getting these uh, people sat in small offices in suits, uh, a little bit excited and saying, well, um, he's so um, committed to this we can get behind it <laughs> I can remember now this is I uh, recall this that um, these offices were full of people just uh, on phones and writing notes whatever and you'd make an appointment to see them well I did go to see a very very important man in Mercury at a certain time and I came through the door and he was asleep he <laughs> His head was on the desk. And uh, as I came in, he lifted up and went, ah, yes, well, uh, who, who are you? Uh, oh, oh, yes, I forgot. I was just, uh, I've got bad eyesight. I was studying something very close on the desk. But um, in general, the energy was fantastic. But I do remember now that once I uh, went into a very important room and that very important person was asleep on the desk and snoring uh, quite profusely. The memories we have. Now, eventually, House of Stone and Light, the actual track, was chosen as the, the single to be released. Um, quite uh, interesting that the record company couldn't make out what the chorus was. 
Was it, uh, I will not rest till I lay down my head in the house of stone and light? Or was it this uh, mid-late section I had uh, where it went da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? Yeah, that uh, Jethro Tull interlude where I thought I would put words, but I didn't, couldn't find the words, so it still remained da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yes, it remained that way. Well, they, they seem to say that the radio stations like both parts, and so they sent out versions, uh, preview versions of uh, both sections, and it was decided that this would be the first single well it was put out and it didn't do a thing um so it was dead in the water and so we thought well there we go after eight months of work or over a year you put a single out within three weeks uh the whole project is gone but luckily um i'd made friends with a great a and r lady at mercury called carrie wood and she believed in me and uh she said we need to go again with this record because there's something in this disc that we need to uh really really promote and she thought that i should go out on a solo promotion tour where i would meet all the radio station directors because of my hits with we built the city and these dreams and king of wishful thinking they were playing these songs still and so this would be good for them to meet me and then i can promote with my big mouth um and my character the sense of what this record was about so kerry wood had a sense that I should just go out on a promo tour myself um, a talking tour as such <laughs> and uh, it worked my goodness as soon as I met the uh, radio directors and programmers the record started to take off they started to believe in the project and the moment they tested in the house of stone and light there was great response um, so it was just about me making friends not just with the record company it was making friends with all the radio stations out there in america and i did actually make great friends with these uh, radio directors um and promotion men um i i remember leaving a lot of the stations and they were very turned on by the record then when i got back home i would write letters to them again and say what a great uh, a great vibe it was to meet you all so there was a very personal thing going on i remember them saying that this was quite unusual for uh, pop artists to be st- out there touring the record so um personally they remembered that uh, i think they said bon jovi of mercury records was the last guy they could remember doing this this personal touch as well as uh, country and western artists they said but in the pop world this was not uh, known or done much and uh, i made very very good friends and over a period of time the record started to climb up the charts and i was calling in from the radio stations to mercury records all the ads i was getting i was actually I got very, very knowledgeable about what was Parallel 1 radio stations and Parallel 2 and Parallel 3 and what were the important ads to get in what areas of the country. I really got into it. And uh, a funny story is that I was House of Stone and Light was moving so fast up the charts uh, that they were a lot of the record companies uh, were wondering who is promoting in the House of Stone and Light. And there were offers made to whoever was promoting House of Stone and Light to um, hire him. Uh, I remember EMI, one of the promotion men who I met on the road said, EMI are trying to inquire who is promoting House of Stone and Light, which was me, and they want to offer you a job. So I could have become a promo man at that point. Thank God I didn't. Anyway, the record was uh, racing up the charts, thank goodness. And uh, I was always on airplanes every day. I was flying somewhere from here to there to there to here. Um, I can't remember actually being on the ground. I just seemed to be flying from 
every small town in the country to every big town in the country. Uh, but the record was moving, which was wonderful. And then Mercury said, it's time to make a video for In the House of Stone and Light. And um, they sent me some directors to look at, and I fell in love with the work of Matt Mahurin. Uh, the work he'd done with Peter Gabriel I thought was exceptional. And uh, Matt Mahurin wanted to do the song, so we did a video for In the House of Stone and Light. I remember meeting Matt Mahurin in New York, and uh, he said to me, Oh, you're much older than I thought, but I think we can make this work. And uh, we got on very well. And he said he wanted to make the most beautiful, beautiful video he could make for this song. After I discussed what it was about, he said, I wanted to film this at a New York uh, zoo and New York gardens. He said, it's just going to be beautiful, trust me. And he was the kind of guy where you really could just lay back and trust what he was going to do. So we spent a day at this uh, these wonderful um, zoo and uh, New York gardens and aquarium. And uh, I remember that when he started to film me, he said, don't smile. Whatever you do, do not smile. And uh, I remember having to sing the song with all these sh shadows moving across my face. And I had to be very alert that the moment I grinned or smiled or looked contented, Matt would say, stop, I need you to do it without smiling. And I think if you look at most of his work, including Peter Gabriel and what he's done ever since, you don't really see the artist smiling. But he made a fantastic video and uh, Mercury were very happy with it. And that instantly on VH1 and MTV started to do very well. So here we are, the next stage from the record beginning to break quite big. And the record company said to me, we now need you to go live. And I thought, well, this means things are happening. And I was thrilled to hear that. So if I was going to take this music, this album out on the road, I wanted to do it um, the right way. And so I, I came back to my home studio and really um, listened to what we had, listened to the master tapes, thought about the musicians that had played on the album and the musicians that could, would go out on the road with me. Fortunately at that point I met a great guy called Mike Rodriguez who had a great uh, knowledge of um, technical aspects of recording in a studio and taking that out onto the road. Mike had been working extensively uh, with Stevie Wonder. So it was great to meet Mike. He was right there at the beginning of the touring. We, uh, we became terrific friends and to this day, one of my best friends. I was determined to take some of the sounds, some of the uh, production out live. And so Mike helped me make sequences up that would complement the live players. Um, I really wanted people to hear the record live as close as we could to how the album actually sounded. So after Mike got involved, um, I, I thought about the players. And I was hopeful that I could take some of the players that had played on the album out on the road with me. And fortunately, that uh, was the way it came together. So I reached out to Jimmy Copley, and he said yes. And I reached out to Neil Taylor, and he said yes. And I reached out to Brian Fairweather, and he said, of course. And so there I had the two guitarists, and I had Jimmy Copley on drums, which was... Uh, Really quite uh, wonderful, really, to start the project off that way live. Obviously, I was going to be playing bass, but I thought, because uh, there's so many um, keyboards and textures in this record, it would be great to have uh, two keyboard players. I'd seen on the road, um, when I'd watched Peter Gabriel play, I'd seen Joy Askew, a female keyboard player, playing with him, I think, on the Secret World Tour, and I, I thought that would be supreme to have Joy Askew involved because she was also singing and I thought we need that in the band so 
uh, found out about Joy Askew, uh, and we got her in the band. Went to New York, I interviewed her, and she said, I'm into this, so let's do it. So Joy Askew was a keyboard player that joined the live band initially. And also a keyboard player, an all-round musician, a man called Mark Mann, who I'd met in L.A., um, many many years before when I was doing my songwriting and he'd been put forward to me as an, uh, an all-rounder and a great technician with keyboards uh, and samples and everything you need to do on live to um, bring this album home so uh, Mark Mann joined us as well so we had a six-piece band and Mercury wanted to do a showcase in San Diego to all of the record company so our first gig our live gig was to play to the record company as a big Mercury Polygram showcase and uh, I rehearsed the band in LA for about two weeks Uh, we got to know the record very very well with a few other tracks and we headed off to San Diego to make our debut uh, to the world and to the record company and I'll mention here that uh, that gentleman Mike Rodriguez that uh, got involved with uh, getting all the music together for the tour he eventually joined me on the road as well and uh, added to the keyboard pickup. So um, uh, Mike came in to join us as well. So we were a six-piece, a seven-piece band uh, early on. Quite a big band when you think about it. So our first gig in San Diego in front of uh, Mercury Records and Polygram went down very well. It was a great gig, and we got a lot of supporters from the uh, record company that had been listening to the album as it was going up the charts. They were there to cheer us on. And Ed Eckstein, the president of the record company, he uh, came up to us after the gig, and he said to me, um, very, very, very much into this, and he said, we need to get you on a support tour, which was great to hear because they, obviously this was a, uh, a tester for us. Uh, and if the record company really wanted to get behind us. And they said, we want you, as I said, on a big support tour. And the first artist that uh, Ed Eckstein said was uh, Amy Grant. He said, I want to get you on the Amy Grant tour. And me being the kind of chap I am, I was thinking, well, I think we need a bit more of a bluesy, rocky kind of um, raunchy tour. And um, I said, I want Bonnie Raitt. I thought that's the kind of artist we should tour with. And Uh, Fortunately, Ed just stared at me and said, yes, I could see that too. But even early on, even though there was a chance to get straight out on the road with Amy Grant, I was hoping that we would get more into a rock, uh, onto a rock tour. Uh, Amy Grant would have been great, actually, in reflection, and she didn't tour in the end. I think she had an eye injury or whatever. And so from that moment on, just as we were about to go out on the road, we were constantly looking for the right support tour. In, in fact, um, we were always looking for the right support tour, and that right support tour never really came in front of us. One great thing that did come together very soon after this band was formed, uh, we went on to the Tonight Show, and uh, we were able to perform House of Stone and Light live on the Tonight Show, and that was a, a great benefit to us starting our tour. It was a great band. Um, it really felt good. Uh, The players really responded to uh, all the material. And there was a great family feel again. Uh, Most of the musicians have been there making the album. So it did feel good and strong right from the start. And very lucky and fortunate to have a good tour manager, um, Ian Lloyd Bisley. Um, Lovely man. Um, Had a great history with artists like Supertramp and Krista Berg. So Ian Lloyd Bisley got on board and he was like another family member as well and so we started a tour of America 
Now, the band had to change quite early on where um, Jimmy Copley had to go back to England and do some sessions. And we lost uh, Joy Askew quite early on because she was also a songwriter and she was developing a songwriting career, an artist career. So coming in to fill the spot of Jimmy Copley was a superb drummer called Moist Lucas, who uh, I auditioned for before we hit a big tour in America. And his heritage was... um, George Michael and Steve Perry, whatever, a superb, superb drummer. And it wasn't easy to, to fill the, uh, the shoes of Jimmy Copley, but uh, Moise was well up to the task. Lovely, lovely man to have on the road with us. So we started our tour, and um, <laughs> I do remember that we all got to the airport to fly to Washington, D.C., uh, and we landed, and we didn't have a drummer. Moise Lucas was not on the plane. And so the band landed uh, for its tour and the drummer was still back in Los Angeles. Mice was still in the airport, um, I think, wandering around, wondering where the band had gone. So our tour manager, right at the beginning of working with us, had to go back to Los Angeles and arrange within eight hours to get our drummer over to us. While we sat in a big tour coach at Washington DC airport, twiddling our thumbs and waiting for our drummer to arrive. A very auspicious start to the tour. And uh, our first gig in Washington, D.C. was was great. And I do remember that uh, Vanessa Levitt, uh, a wonderful lady who's been working with me from those days on right up till now, helping me with my social media and my websites. Uh, she was in the crowd, so that was the place. And I remember uh, quite distinctly that Vanessa uh, was at that gig. And uh, pretty amazing that uh, later on we got to work together. And so the first gig in Washington, D.C. was um, a great start. And we were off on the US tour. Now, some of the gigs were terrible uh, in the sense that we were booked into places where we weren't promoted uh, and hadn't been advertised. Um, So we were playing sometimes in places where maybe there were two people there, maybe one person sweeping uh, the floor and one person serving at the bar. But the band encouraged me. They were such a great band. They said, let's let's use every single uh, chance we get to get better. And so we did some, quite strange really, doing very small gigs in out-of-the-way places where nobody came. And then we would do a big festival where everybody came. So it was a mismatch. Uh, We were still trying to get on that uh, tour, supporting somebody which would bring in the bigger audiences. But the band was getting better and better and better. And then out of the blue, um, a call came from Germany. A top promoter in Germany wanted to... uh, bring uh, me across to play at a called Rock in the Ring, a a very famous uh, yearly uh, live concert at the Olympic Stadium in Munich. Um, Bands like, again, Bon Jovi, Hootie and the Blowfish, Delamitri, and we'd be making a few inroads in Germany with with our album, and he believed, because he'd uh, broken Phil Collins in Germany, he said, you are the perfect artist for Germany. Now, Unbeknownst to me, the record company was about was struggling. Mercury Records was really fighting to keep its head above water. And so when this offer came in from Germany, which I thought would be great for us to hit, hit uh, Europe, um, they didn't want to fund it. They knew that the record company was about to fold. Uh, we didn't know that, but they were facing some problems. Um, and so I was determined to go to Germany. Luckily, my manager had made great uh, friendship with the German promoter and uh, she signed a contract with him and Mercury Records had to uh, honor that contract but they just did not want to fund it. So I contributed most of the money 
to getting my band across to Germany, where the audiences were fantastic. Uh, not only were we going to play the Olympic Stadium, we were going to do a, a little tour of Germany playing all the main centres. Um, so something felt quite strange. We had a number one record in the AC charts in, uh, in America. It was also uh, top 20. It reached number 14 in the pop charts. So everything was pointing towards us um, making some noise. And uh, we, we were about to go to Germany, and yet the record company were, seemed to be um, falling away from us. Um, well, I didn't know at that point, but there wasn't much of a future for Mercury Records. Anyway, all I wanted to do was to get to Germany. Um, I believe we could have a future there um, and in Europe. A shame they didn't release the record in the House of Stone and Light in my home country in England. I think they said it's too much like Sting, too much like Peter Gabriel. And so it wasn't released, which was a great shame to me. Um, in fact, a funny, quite a funny story is that when House of Stone and Light was out in the, uh, in the shops here in America, a lot of people went into the shop saying, we want that Sting record, that Sting record about uh, a House of Stone and Light. Um, so we had to put in all the, all the bins, all the record bins, we had to label it, uh, this is Martin Page, no, it's not Sting. So we were in Germany and it, was, it did feel good. The audiences were um, really into the record and uh, uh, something special was happening between the audiences and the band and we were in, a, we were in fine form at that point. Um, I do remember playing at Nuremberg at the, the racetrack there in a raging storm and I remember that the promoter came to see us and he said uh, exactly what I hoped for, uh, you should follow um, in the footsteps of Phil Collins here, we could, th you should break here. And I remember uh, in that raging storm where we never got electrocuted, thank goodness, we were voted MTV's most promising band for um, that festival. What I do remember, um, pretty special about Germany, is playing the song The Door. When we were rehearsing that back in LA, I remember uh, my keyboard player, Mark Mann, saying, do you want to play that? Are you sure? That could be quite dangerous. The Door portrays the uh, extermination camp uh, Treblinka and the uh, escape of 300 Jews from that camp. It's a song uh, affirming hope and courage. Um, but it does point a finger at what happened um, in Germany at that time. So, but, I, but when we rehearsed it, the song felt so glorious. It was one of those songs that when we rehearsed it and played it live, we, we got touched ourselves. Something was always was quite special about playing that song live. But I did decide to play it uh, in Germany, and uh, the response from the crowds was, you know, quite incredible. There was a sense of reverence, there was a sense of people getting the message and we got such response um, in, in a lot of ways we got standing ovations for that song so that was so rewarding so uh, eventually we came back to America um, I remember looking down upon England as I was flying back and thinking what a shame I couldn't stop off in England and play but the buggers didn't release it there um, we were back in America um, Mark Mann, our keyboard player, had to go on to some other projects, so we brought in a wonderful, wonderful female keyboard player called Julie Homie, an English lady. Um, she'd just been touring with Robert Palmer, and she felt perfect for the gig. And Mike Rodriguez has, stu has stepped forward um, as adding the extra keyboards that we needed for the band. Um, so we were going to play some more, more gigs in America, but still it was very hard with Mercury Records. They didn't really want to keep me out there, and yet we were getting stronger and stronger, and the bigger gigs were coming down the line. 
Um, it's hard when you're out on the road and a record company is uh, fragmenting and breaking up behind you. Uh, but we kept going, luckily. Uh, we had good management uh, and uh, everybody said, let's keep rolling with this as long as we can. I think we were out on the road for around two years um, and uh, it was special. I mean, I, I still stay in, in touch with the players that were on the, on the road and there was a real good feeling about the, uh, the unity and the family we had. I do remember, I can think of two special gigs here when we played New Orleans, the House of Blues. Uh, Bill Dillon, the wonderful Canadian guitarist who'd contributed such great work to the House Stone and Light. He got up on stage with us in the, on the encore and he played a few tracks with us, which was pretty outstanding to have Bill playing with us there in New Orleans. And then when I did play Los Angeles, it was quite frustrating to me that the record was in America broke on the East Coast um, and not in my home uh, LA and the West Coast quite as much. But we, so we weren't able to gig um, around the California area as much as I would have liked to, but we did play the House of Blues in LA and which still remains a great memory to me uh, was that Maurice White uh, uh, brought some of Earth, Wind and Fire and himself to the House of Blues to watch us play. Uh, that was very special. He was up in the top balcony there with um, Verdine White and Philip Bailey and about four members of the band, uh, which was a lovely touch. Maurice really believed in uh, my album in the House of Stone and Light. Uh, he felt that lyrically I'd reached um, a very special place. So in my, in my memory now, uh, and that was around the gigs were beginning to come to uh, the end then that we played House of Blues in LA and there was Maurice White to give us um, his uh, blessing, which was great. Uh, eventually, as the record company was vanishing out of sight, uh, myself and just Brian Fairweather went out and did some acoustic gigs, which was um, brilliant for me and Brian because we were uh, songwriter partners uh, right back from the late 70s. So it was good to be out there with Brian. Um, so the tour, really, we were touring for about two years, and I think this is where I can end the story of the touring of In the House of Stone and Light. Seems to me it's the time to talk about the legacy of this album, the legacy of the song. Um, in hindsight, I can now look with different eyes. Uh, from 1994 right up to now, uh, what this record really has meant to me, my career, and um, how it's touched so many people, and how for some reason, even though it's a little bit uh, below the radar, has um, made an impression. So let's start off with some of the technical facts and statistics and awards, uh, etc. For the In the House of Stone and Light single, um, it was the American Music Awards AC Adult Contemporary Single of the Year in 1995 and it also became Billboard's top adult contemporary single of the year reaching number one and in Billboard's uh, pop charts it reached number 14 and it was overall uh, in the pop charts uh, the end of year pop charts of Billboard it was in the top 40 it, it became number 35 it received top five awards for both 1995 and 1996 at the ASCAP Pop Awards for most performed song. And it became the longest charting single in Billboard's AC adult contemporary chart history. It broke all the records, and that is still a little bit uh, mind-boggling to me today. The second single from the album, um, Keeper of the Flame, it got top 20 adult contemporary, went to number 15. But the poor old album itself uh, only reached 161 in the Billboard album charts. For some reason, we just couldn't launch this ship. 
Uh, but the song itself, the single in the House of Stone and Light, yes, uh, she had quite a long, uh, illustrious career. Well, some other thoughts about the, the life, the legacy um, of this song. I literally have never received so much communication or mail uh, about a song that I've written, particularly regarding the emotional content of the song, uh, its power of healing, and how people have responded to the inner meaning of the song. Uh, to this day, uh, this song seems to resonate intimately and personally with people. So many communications I've received from people, it, it, it's very much like the song has saved them at a certain point in their life. That uh, at a certain point in their life, they've needed to hear this song and it seems to have been life-affirming to them. And uh, a restoration song, which to me is just wonderful because that's how I wrote the song for myself. Uh, most people tell me that the song resonates to them in a way of lifting their spirits and helping them um, want to fight on and to get through tough periods in their life, restoring them. Now as a child, that's what I always loved about uh, music. It seemed to strengthen me and give, gave me a purpose, gave me hope. And uh, the communications I've received over the years since this song and this album was released are entirely of that nature. And as a songwriter, there is no deeper reward. Uh, when I went on to YouTube a few years back, I was stunned by how many college a cappella groups were singing in the House of Stone and Light. It seems to be in the top five of songs that uh, college a cappella groups and choirs perform. Uh, particularly a performance uh, by the Brown Derbies is, uh, re resonates with me pretty special. Wonderful to see all the young people coming together, working out the harmonies of the song um, and really arranging it in a hymnal way. I get a big buzz from that. Now, some time back, I was interviewed by the great professor of rock who has a wonderful show on the internet and on social media, interviewing various people within the music business, uh, artists, songwriters and groups. And uh, the day that he interviewed me, he presented me with a plaque, uh, a special plaque that he'd had made for me, uh, with which he expressed what In the House of Stone and Light meant to him. And in finishing this uh, In the House of Stone and Light special, I'm sure the professor wouldn't mind me reading his words here. Music is many things to many people, but to me, pop music is at its best when a song is unexpectedly gifted to one's soul in times of discouragement desperation or loss. One such moment in my life when a song saved me was towards the end of my senior year in high school. I had just made a horrible mistake. A mistake that's ramifications had the ability to drastically alter my life's path. I felt the world was closing in on me. The pressure and anxiety was crushing my soul as I was searching for the pieces and how to put them back together of a puzzle that was my sanity. Just when all hope felt lost, a song came on the radio. The beautiful words, O Mount Kylos, uncover me, come my restoration, wash my body clean. Its beauty, elegance and spiritual light broke through the crippling darkness that enveloped me like a cocoon. In the house of stone and light was exactly that. A powerful light that peeled back the layers of doubt, apprehension and fear lyric by lyric, until my soul was a vessel of absolute enlightenment. My spirit had been at war, 
and the song's enduring light had given me life. Within a few short minutes, I knew I would be okay. The tranquility of this song had rallied my sense of being, and I was completely empowered. Martin Page's wonderful composition had shown me my soul, and in that moment, I was reborn. To this day, even after hearing this song hundreds of times, I still get choked up. The hairs on my neck stand straight up at every listen. That's what inspired music does. It lifts us from peril and delivers us to the promised land. Thank you, uh, the Professor of Rock. I am eternally humbled by your words. I'm grateful that I wrote this song at the right time for myself and it seems other people. Uh, uh, very rare in a songwriter's career to write uh, one song that seems to transcend fashion, I suppose. I've always wanted to do that, where a song becomes more meaningful than its style, more meaningful than its production, and uh, even more meaningful than its performance. Its power is in its message. And uh, I'm just grateful uh, that this song allowed me to write it. So there we are. Thank you for joining me. Uh, hopefully through part one, part two, and here part three of the making of In the House of Stone and Light, a Radio Owl's Nest uh, special, actually a series of specials. I hope you found the specials interesting. Certainly when I looked back, I remembered some things that uh, I'm glad that I recalled uh, before all this fades away. I had to get the CD booklet out again to have a look at this to find out some of the facts. And I noticed... There are album thanks here to Ginger, Teddy, Bunny, Tiger, Tootie and Snowy. When I think of you, I smile. Ah, that must have been the feline collaborators. And this album was dedicated to my parents, Ruth and Alan. But again, thank you for joining me for part three of Radio Owl's Nest Special, the making of In the House of Stone and Light. This is Martin Page saying, be safe, be well. Bye-bye.